Well, hello and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I am Amanda McCrossin here on this slightly cloudy but beautiful day that I'm sure my two fellow guest hosts are enjoying as well. Vanessa, how's the weather where you are in Napa? Yeah. I know it's really pretty. The sun is out. You know, we had all that rain a couple of weeks ago. So uh, things are drying out, but no, it's gorgeous. I love this time of year in Napa Valley. It's a little chilly, but it's just so beautiful in the way the clouds settle on the mountain. So no, I'm in a very happy place. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. This time of year, we're into the late January, February time where things can get a little cloudy, but it's also a good time to like sit back and enjoy a glass. And we've got Louisa Ponzi here as well, who is joining us from the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Louisa, I suspect it is a little cloudy up where you are too. Surprisingly, it's cloudy and rainy. (laughs) That that would be Oregon. Yeah, that's, it's pretty normal. Um, Actually, we've had some good sunshine. It's been some dry, but we're getting into some very cold temperatures coming up. So we're all kind of preparing for the Mm -hmm. 20 degrees that's coming in. Well, temperature is going to be a really big part of this conversation and weather, of course, as well as we talk about one of our favorite grapes today, which is Pinot Noir. So if you caught our episode with Dan Petrosky, we talked about Chardonnay and the many paths to making Chardonnay. We called it the winemaker's grape. And in many ways, I think Pinot is sort of the opposite. So we're going to talk a little bit about Pinot Noir how we arrive at all of these different styles of Pinot Noir because it is a beautiful wine. And if you are not a fan of Pinot Noir, I hope at the end of this conversation, you will be. La Palais is also around the corner. So it feels very timely as well. Have either of you ever participated in this Burgundian slash now New York American tradition? I was able to go in Burgundy a long time ago. And then I went to one of the ones in San Francisco where they used to have it. It was so fun. It's amazing. I have not. I have not. No, no, no. One of these days I'll get there, but have heard stories from from many a, a attendee that it gets pretty wild. <laughs> <laughs> all the yes. stories, all the stories. Yeah, La Palais, uh, a very big celebration that originated in Burgundy that has sort of been, I'd say copied, but I think just like lovingly embraced and reiterated for the U.S. market. But if you are a lover of Pinot Noir, especially that Pinot Noir from Burgundy, La Poly is definitely the place that should be on your bucket list to at least go to yes. like one of the tastings because it's pretty, yes. it's pretty amazing. I've only ever gone to the tasting. I've never gone. There's a huge dinner. It's like they call it like the, the best BYOB party on the planet. Everybody brings their best wines from their cellar and it is yes. quite the experience or so they say, but I've never gone. Maybe someday, maybe someday Vanessa and I will. We'll go together. Invited. We'll go together. We can, we can yeah, prop amazing. each other up after, you know, <laughs> glasses and glasses of Grand Cru Burgundy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those who don't know our guest, Louisa Ponzi today, Louisa, like I said, is joining us from, uh, from her family property up in the Willamette Valley. And and the reason that you're here, Louisa, of course, is because like Dan was so familiar with making white wine and specifically that of Chardonnay, Louisa has an incredible background making Pinot Noir. And of course, if that name Ponzi sounds very familiar to you, as it should, if you're a lover of Oregon Pinot Noir, her family has been making wine in the Willamette Valley for quite some time. But Louisa, separate from that, has had quite the journey on her own making wine under some pretty important people in Burgundy, uh, I saw Rumier listed on your resume. That's a pretty big one. You you worked in at a Vietti in the Piedmont, and you were awarded the Certificate Brevet Professionnel. I'm going to butcher this, by the way. Ooh, Melanie, no, it's, it's pretty good. Okay, all right. Well, anyway, it's a very it's a very prestigious uh, certification. You were the only woman at the time to earn such a distinction. So, 
who better suited to lead this conversation than you? Is there anything I missed? Anything that you think is like relevant to that people should know? Oh, gosh, no, just the fact that, uh, you know, Ponzi has been around for good, we're going on 53 years. And so I I learned a lot from Burgundy, but I learned more from my father. So second generation as well. That's really nice. Yeah, you always kind of learn like you learn from lots of different places. I'm glad to hear you learned from my from your father, my father. Mm -hmm. I love my father dearly, but he's an engineer. So learning from my father was a bit of a challenge because everything is over explained. So we're going to try not to do too much of that today. We're going to try not to (laughs) get like too deep in the weeds. But, you know, I think Pinot is a really fun, fun topic to talk about because there are so many different paths to Pinot, despite it not really being a grape that is heavily manipulated like some others. So before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the wine world. If you've ever tried to buy wine and you live in a state that uh, has certain laws, as many states do, you've probably noticed that there are a lot of shipping regulations when it comes to wine. And this has been the case for many years, something that Wine Access has actually navigated really beautifully. But the Supreme Court, once again, has decided to decline to hear a case pivotal to fixing the country's very confusing wine shipping laws. For the third time in two years, the U.S. Supreme Court considered taking a case regarding interstate wine shipping by retailers, but ultimately declined to do so. <laughs> they declined without comment to take the case of B21 Wines down in Florida v. Uh, v. Bauer. This was a case that was brought on to challenge uh, North Carolina because they were you could buy wine from retailers or retailers could ship out of the state, but outside retailers couldn't ship into the state. It just further complicates all the things and the bureaucracy around wine. And as I think we've talked about in other episodes, really irritates me because as much as we try to get wine in more people's glasses, things like this just continue to astound me that we can't fix. But Vanessa, I'm sure being in the in the wine e-commerce business, you probably have some thoughts on this. And Louise, I'm sure you do too. We have a compliance person on staff and I do not envy her having to, <laughs> to navigate all these different laws to be uh, to be compliant. But the laws are in place there to kind of protect local commerce within the state, you know, try to keep people to be buying from these local retailers. And I think a lot of it also is sometimes is is trying to get people to buy from wineries. I mean, I think all 50 states now are making wine. You know, you hear mm-hmm. a lot these days about like Virginia wine, and they're really trying to drive people to spending money within that own state. But yeah, for a consumer, especially someone who, like who might be listening to this podcast and really interested in trying lots of different things, you know, that stinks. <laughs> Yeah, it's terrible. You know, at wineries from our end, we we have compliance people on staff as well. It's a it's a full time job trying to keep track of all the different laws and when you have to file and paying the sales tax and all the things that they want. Every state has different rules. It's infuriating because, as we know, there's a lot of things that aren't regulated quite as well as as alcohol, right. but get to be sent through the mail wherever they want to go. <laughs> and, so- and some states, even if it's, uh, you know, allowed to ship into it, they have a limit as to how many, you know, cases per month or you can get right. per person. I, I, we, we are, we play by the book completely at Wine Access because we're, we don't want to get in trouble, but I know plenty yeah. of, you know, people who do a little bit of cowboy shipping or it's like, well, we already shipped you your number of cases, but like, can we ship to your brother's name or your neighbor? Or, I mean, people find a way around it. Obviously that's, that's what they're going to do. But yeah, it's annoying for sure. It's a bit of a throwback to prohibition almost, Mm -hmm. you know, really, really, really regulating, make sure that people aren't drinking too much and, you know. Oh, it's, it's totally a throwback to prohibition. 
I'm in Pennsylvania where the post-prohibition laws are still very much intact. And I'm sure both of you have experienced that on your respective ends, being from the winery and retailer. But even talking to some people here in the state about what some of the state laws, interstate laws, to just sell wine, distribute wine, do all those things, it's kind of insane the amount of legislation that they have to work through to rectify some of these like very long-standing issues that really just don't really make any sense any longer. So yeah, I think all this to say it's complicated, it's going to remain complicated. Um, I don't know what the solution is at this point other than like if you are interested, continue lobbying those that can make changes. <laughs> but in the meantime, you know, thank you to both of you for continuing to help do what you can to make wine more accessible, despite all of the red tape that I'm sure you have to work through. Mm-hmm. And very expensive lawyers, I'm sure, that have to do a lot of things as well. On a slightly more like fun note, I'm sure some of you have seen the clip of our friend Tom Hanks going around on the Stephen Colbert show. Have you all seen this yet? Vanessa, have you seen yeah. this? Yes. <laughs> How could I not? <laughs> um, I think all you have to do is pull up any social media app and you, it will probably have surfaced. But yes. Stephen Colbert had Tom Hanks on. Tom Hanks was talking about, I think, being at some party or reception or something. And he was talking about the fact that he accidentally invented a new cocktail featuring Vanessa and mine and maybe Louise's favorite beverage, which is champagne, except that he wasn't drinking it alone. He added it to his Diet Coke. Well, yeah, because I'm type 2 diabetes. You oh, gotta, there you go. You've got to maintain the temple. And what's better than type 2 diabetes than a little shot of champagne in your Diet Coke? So, so I cap it yeah, off here? Just, 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 there you go. I'm this is exactly say, what the folks at Vouv Clicquot intended, ho, by, they, ho, with the way, by the way, that this is... This recipe can also be found in the book of the Revelation. That's right. Now, first of, of all, apocalypse. look at the color. Is it it's not, gorgeous. Is it not kind of gorgeous, right? It's like an American Aperol Spritz. And, and I want to say, happy 2023. Happy 2023. How about that? And then called it diet, and I'm going to put this in quotations, cocaine. Um, <laughs> thoughts? I can understand how this can happen at a party, especially like, you know, you maybe you put your glass down and accidentally pick up someone else's glass or you have some something in your glass and then you think you're going to refill it and you grab the wrong bottle. So there's a little collaborative winemaking that happens at parties sometimes <laughs> inadvertently. <laughs> this right? feels very this feels very intentional, though. I think he like he just looked he like to. he was going to like he was like, I'm going to play bartender <laughs> on this on this tray that's being passed around. All I can say is, you know, don't knock until you try it. And I haven't tried it. So I want to be open. I'm not going to say I'm going to like really seek this out aggressively. But hey, you know, who am I to judge? (laughs) I'm also like not a Diet Coke fan. Same. Like my mind just immediately went to like that taste of like anything that's got that fake sweetener flavor mixed Mm -hmm. with anything else that actually has like sugar and would be delicious. And I like immediately my brain just seized up. I was like, Mm -hmm. hard pass. I don't know. I'm a bit of a purist. I don't think I could do it. Once in a while, I'll put like an ice cube in my rosé. That's like a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like like I'm I'm doing something evil when I do that. So... (laughs) Well, I guess if we think about it, I mean, it's not without precedent, right? I mean, a, a Cure Royale was, sure. you know, adding a well, little creme cassis to, to mm-hmm. champagne. And so, yeah, I mean. Although, Vanessa, isn't your favorite type of mimosa, like, champagne hold the OJ? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, exactly. I can relate to that. 
for those of you who really want to geek out even further and you want, you know, I know some people really love to know the ins and outs of our industry. And I think one of the most uh, telling things that we get every single year is the state of the wine industry report, which just came out for 2022. Um, this is, as our friend Lara Coffer put it, mandatory reading for wine pros. This is put out every year mm-hmm. by Silicon Valley Bank. It is a, a huge summation of the whole year of trends in buying, in consumption, in pricing, at basically anything you'd want to know as far as what the wine drinker is doing and what wineries are selling and how much it's selling for. This is the report that you read. It is, it's lengthy, but it's really well done. So yep. it's not, it's not like the grape report that they put out. We were like, wait, how many charts are there? This actually is like, is Gary beautifully put, it looks like a, a pitch deck, but have either of you guys taken a peek at it yet? I have. And and I will say if you're interested and don't want to read, they also do a video that you can mm, watch, which is like a video mm. recap. It's always interesting. This is a great report and and Silicon pulls out a special report for every region as well. So we mm-hmm. get this great like Oregon. How's Oregon doing in the world of wine? This one, I think, you know, what I saw was that it's the big emphasis is how do we get younger drinkers drinking wine? And it's mm-hmm. been a topic that we've been talking about for years and years and years. And it's continues to be kind of a challenge for us to reach out and attract younger drinkers. Yes, exactly. I think we've been talking about this for many years, like how do we get millennials in the space and all that? And it was sort of like, well, they want a story. It's about experiences and that's what we need to do. And it's like, well, no, I mean, now they're just a lot of people younger are just not drinking at all. So it has nothing to do with like, oh, we need to tell a better story or market it differently. Like, no, they they don't want to drink. They don't want to drink alcohol. Yeah. You have a lot of sober curious. You have a lot of people that just would rather not waste their time or their money on something that they don't understand or want to take the time to understand. The report did show that overall wine consumption showed a second year of negative growth, which is you know, obviously not great. The other thing is future sales weigh on the industry's ability to appeal to a new generation of consumers. And one question that was maybe I think we should pose to all three of us is, is wine in need of a bug cultural event that gets Americans excited, a la Judgment of Paris, the French Paradox, Sideways, you know, even the movie Psalm to some degree, I think got people excited. But what do you guys think? Do you think that there is a a cultural phenomenon that needs to happen in order for this to not be the case for our sales to continue to dwindle or consumption to continue to dwindle? It's a good question. I don't know that I know the answer, but I'm thinking about, you mentioned the French paradox, which is for anyone that doesn't know, is a, you know, an article that came out in the seventies about the health benefits of yes. red wine. I think they had done a study in, in France about heart disease, if I'm remembering correctly. And that like, you know, these mm-hmm. people who actually consumed wine regularly had a lower case, a lower number of cases. And it, really catapulted wine cells in the United States. So I guess something like that, but it's funny that that article about health was saying, oh, you should drink wine. Now it's like, you know, you shouldn't drink wine. So I do feel like the pendulum will swing the other way again at some point, you know, or at least like settle in the middle. They do this with like coffee and chocolate and whatever. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. You never know (laughs) what, what, and wine right now is, yeah, there was that big story in the New York times about, about the detriment to your health and, and the industry needs to do a better job of, of telling the public about the health benefits of wine. And really there's some great, great research that's been done, but we don't put it out there well enough. Wine is almost starting to look like something that is bad for your health. 
I wonder how much of what we're experiencing now in a weird way is is connected to some of these companies that are specifically marketing um, things like zero sugar wine or like clean headaches, wine, clean wine, you know, to mm-hmm. almost indicate that the other types of wines are loaded with sugar and bad for your health. I wonder how much of those mark, because, you know, there's a huge marketing budget for those and you're seeing those ads pop up everywhere you are. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that, whether conscious or subconscious, is sort of indicating to the younger generation that, hey, maybe this isn't as good for you as we initially thought. Drink in moderation, of course. Always yes. drink in moderation. Yeah. We need to ask you to do something, which is if you're enjoying this show and you're enjoying all this conversation and all of this free information that we're giving you on a biweekly basis, it would be so amazing if you could take your glass of wine, just set it down for a moment and leave us a little review. Subscribe to the show, like the show if you're watching it on YouTube. And if you do, we might actually read the review. And in fact, this one I'm going to read this week is actually from our YouTube channel, which we've been having so much fun with. This is from Heidi Martesian who said, oh my goodness, I love this show. I joined the club in the fall, but probably found out I was pregnant with their second child. Congratulations. I've really been missing having a glass of tea or wine in the evening and decided to listen in on the podcast and it's been wonderful. I've been binging the show like I would something on Netflix and have just loved learning more about wine and living vicariously through you all. Can't wait to finally uncork some bottles in summer and revisit these episodes. Cheers. Heidi, that is so lovely. I am so looking forward to you being able to come back to us and open a few bottles and have a few glasses, but I love that you're binging us like Netflix. We're like, we're one step closer to a Netflix show, Vanessa. We're bordering like White Lotus territory. (laughs) We are right there. Jennifer Coolidge is about to call. Awesome. Okay, well, while we wait for her call, please go ahead and grab your (laughs) wines. We're going to uncork ours and get ready to dive into all things Pinot. We'll be right back. All right, everyone. At this point, if you are not a member of the Wine Access Unfiltered Wine Club and therefore not drinking with us on this show, get your act together. What are you doing? Come on, join the fun. (laughs) It's a good time. Um, We talked about this shipment kind of ad nauseum. We've been obsessed with this shipment. Uh, And I think this is a perfect example of what Wine Access does and what we do in Napa Valley, which is have these great relationships with people. This wine totally stemmed out of a relationship that I had with my friend Josh Phelps. So if you are joining with us, it should be the 2021 Landform Pinot Noir from Oregon. Vanessa, I'll let you talk a little bit about this wine just for a second, and then I'll kind of give you the backstory on how we landed here. What we really wanted to do with the show, and we're going to talk a lot about it later with Louisa as being our panel expert today, was really talk about um, Pinot Noir as a variety, talk about um, all the different ways that it can be made, and specifically dig into something called whole cluster, which is using a whole cluster of grapes rather than destemming them, it, it, either in a large percentage or a small percentage, and all the ways you might do that and why you would choose to do that or not do that, and then what it would impact um, in the wine glass stylistically. But yeah, Josh is quite the entrepreneur. I think he's been on the 30 under 30 and the 40 under 40, different publications, yeah. but definitely like <laughs> ma- has <laughs> has made his mark. We're going to have to invent a 50 under 50 eventually just so he can keep his streak going. <laughs> But um, kind of comes from Napa, like royalty in a way. His dad is Chris Phelps, who honed his craft at Petrus in Bordeaux and then was the founding winemaker at Dominus and also made wine at Camus. 
and Inglenook. So he certainly had a great role model there with his dad. But Josh really wanted to make wines that kind of showcased great regions on the western side of the United States, but at a price point that was kind of more affordable to people of his own age group. So this is um, this is a wine that has 25% whole cluster. It has no new oak on this. And it's from three different regions, which Louisa can definitely lend more insight to, which is Yola Amity Hills, Jehella Mountains, and Yamhill Carlton. So blend of all three in this glass here. Let's dive a little bit into Pinot Noir. Vanessa, you mentioned stem inclusion, which of course is going to be a focus on this episode. I think initially we had this tentatively titled to stem or not to de-stem. That is the question. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But u- ultimately what we want to talk about it are all the th- all the factors that go into making Pinot Noir, because it is a very unique grape from something like Cabernet Sauvignon. We talked about Chardonnay as well in a different episode. So we want to talk about some of the factors that go into making Pinot, whether that's soil, climate, aspect, different clones, you know, how things are planted. And then of course the actual winemaking part of it. So if you kind of like divide it out into two sections, we're looking at like terroir and then we're looking at the actual winemaking techniques. So Louisa, I'd love to jump in with you and just sort of briefly talk about Pinot Noir as a grape, what you love about it, what you have liked less about it, and um, sort of <laughs> what your what your relationship has been with Pinot Noir over the last few years. All those things you just mentioned, yeah, they, they become, they're important to every varietal, right? But with Pinot Noir, they become like so much more important because there's so much transparency in this grape, right? So every step of the way from the planting to where it is on the hillside to the you know, how you planted your vineyard to how you grow it, how you make the wine, it's all going to show up in that final product in the glass, flaws and all, if, if that's the way it goes. But, you know, you really, you really cannot like cover it up. It's going to be there and it's, it's, it is what it is. So it expresses where it's from and how it's treated, you know, very, very, very transparently. It can be the most amazing glass of wine you ever had and it can be the worst wine you've ever had for all those reasons because it's a difficult varietal. Isn't it sort of nicknamed like the heartbreak grape? Yes, yes. For very good reason. For very good reason, because you really there's so much that can go wrong, to be honest with you. <laughs> and then and then there's so much to learn always. So right. it's uh yeah, it, it definitely is the heartbreak grape. There's no question. Pinot Noir is very transparent, right? So if if Pinot were a person, uh that person was not capable of wearing a lot of makeup or any at all, right? So that person's going right. to take incredibly good care of themselves to make sure that they are glowing from the inside out, that their skincare regimen is great, that they're eating healthy, that they maybe aren't imbibing too much, right? So health of the actual vineyard is incredibly important. Genetics obviously help a little bit too, I assume. Pinot is a very fickle grape. I, I use the example of my mom on the beach. My mom is a very <laughs> fickle human on the beach. Like she doesn't like to be too hot. So if she gets too hot, she like needs a little shade. But then if she is like too much shade, she's like, no, bring back the sun. I still want like the sun on me. And then like the breeze comes and she's like, I like that, but like not too much. Right. So it's like my mom at the beach with Pinot Noir, but Pinot as a grape, like as a whole, like if you were to characterize it with maybe like four or five descriptors, regardless of where it's grown and how it's made, are there identifiable characteristics that you think exist in the Pinot Noir grape over and over and over again? I think there's this ephemeral note to Pinot Noir. It's like this beautiful aromatics um, that you can get. And they can go from super fruit forward to very floral aromatics and, you know, lavender and violet and rose petal and all these beautiful floral notes. But then you also get this complexity to Pinot Noir that 
often you don't find in other varietals, these dimensions that can be either coming from the site or from the winemaker. What are you looking for if you're planting a vineyard to Pinot Noir? Is it soil? Is it weather? One step back from there is where are you planting it? Like where in the world are you planting mm-hmm. it? Because point. Pinot Noir cannot be grown everywhere. It's, it's one of these grapes that really needs specific criteria for where it's going to express itself the best. So looking for those cooler sites, that's where it really, really shines, is looking for kind of the border of where you can grow grapes almost. Mm. So things that ripen later, you have cooler sites that you're always a little bit on the edge of, are we going to get it right? That's where it finds its true expression. When you're picking the fruit at the very end of the life cycle of the vine. So you're not picking it because it's so ripe. You're picking it because the vine is going to shut down. And that's when the flavor is the most expressive. Mm. And so cooler areas, which is why we're in the Willamette Valley, more northern parts, even within the Willamette Valley, looking for for northern, cooler, you know, more higher elevation. It likes, you know, sunshine at the right time of day. Like you said, it's like your mother. It's like, (laughs) I want sunshine, but I only want it in the morning, right? You know, so making sure that you are capturing as much light as you can because you're usually in a cooler area. It can express itself differently in different soils. And obviously in Burgundy, you know, the limestone soil is what is being expressed in those wines. So clearly um, here in the Willamette Valley, we're we're all basalt. It's all volcanic soils, right? So we have this different expression of Pinot Noir. So it's one that, yes, you have to take great care of where you're putting it and how you're planting it. What do you think the expression of Pinot Noir on basalt versus limestone is? Like, what are what would the variable be there? There's certainly a kind of clarity to the wines of Burgundy. I feel that it's it's almost like this minerality that that you can find. So this kind of clarity and linear kind of quality and focus to those wines, and the acidity is always very bright and beautiful. I think here in Oregon. We do get more inherent fruit in the wines, so you're going to see more kind of like these strawberry characters or raspberry or plum or cherry. Those are the prominent characters of the wine. If you're in a wine shop or you're on wineaccess.com and you're looking at different pinots, the first thing you should be looking at is where it's grown because that's going to tell you so much about that wine and how it's going to taste. And to your point, you know, more sunshine, more warm, those are going to give you the more pronounced fruit flavor profile. In these cooler areas, like in Burgundy and in some places in the Lamette Valley, you know, you're going to start to lean in just like you would with any wine grown in a cool climate with something a little bit more savory that's maybe a little bit more nervy. And you have to think about how fruit actually ripens, not just grapes, but any fruit, right? You're going to retain a little bit more of that tartness. So obviously, you know, weather is is huge. Soil is huge. How important is clonal selection? I always think this is such a, a funny question that I used to get asked at press a lot was like, do you know what clones were used for this wine? How important do you think clonal selection is? I think it's really important and really boring. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like we t- I feel like we talk we talk about clones all the time and it's just like I've been doing this for what 35 years now making wine and when I started I was so into the clones and I would pick everything separate and keep it in the cellar separate and you know end of the day I was always blending this stuff in the cellar because that's where you really found the best expression of Pinot Noir is when you do away with that kind of monoculture of one clone. Mm -hmm. So everything I plant now is about 27 different clones of Pinot that I have just mixed before planting and then throw it into the field. Mm. So I don't have to talk about clone anymore. It's a beautiful mix of clones that I know I love. (laughs) And 
now I can talk about site and I can talk about, oh, this part of the vineyard does this and this part of it does this, knowing that I have that beautiful mix of clones that I prefer. Let's talk about what happens once you do get the fruit into the winery. You know, you, you've hopefully done all the right things when it comes to farming, growing, picking the right date. But then once you get in the winery, how much is happening? Because one of the things that I actually didn't even know was a thing until I moved out to California is this thing called whole cluster fermentation. And it is a far more complicated topic than I ever realized. Initially, when it was explained to me, it was basically like, oh yeah, like, you know, for Cabernet, they take the grapes off of the actual cluster and they remove the stems and, you know, then the wine gets fermented, right? When we're talking about whole cluster, we're we're really only seeing this with grapes like Pinot Noir, occasionally Zinfandel, some Gamay. Um, When we're talking about whole cluster, those grapes are not being separated or they're maybe partially being separated from the actual stems. Do you exercise that? Is it as complicated as people make it out to be? Because I've heard like, well, it depends on how ripe your stems are and it depends on like where you actually include them in the actual barrel. And like, I've heard there's like sandwiching between there. So can you just sort of explain what whole cluster is? It is a simple process. It's exactly what it sounds like. You're you're throwing the grapes directly into a, a tank or a container. And Grape you're clusters. The whole entire the whole cluster. cluster. That's right. 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 So it's picked off the field and it's brought directly in. So there's no removing of the, the berries at all. And you put it in a tank and you're fermented like that. And yes, it sounds simple, but it is complicated. Your point of depends, it depends, it depends. So there's so many things that it depends on. And <laughs> at what point do you make that decision and what vintages are better for it and what vines are better? So it brings this, like you said, this very clear savory note. But more than that, I think it brings texture to the wines. Mm. And that's something that I'm personally super interested in is, is how a wine feels and how it hits your mouth and, and that experience. And that whole cluster component can really, really make beautifully silky and kind of seamless wines. There are also like considerations around whether to use the stems because the stems have to be ripe, right? And they have to be mm-hmm. not have, yeah. you know, mold or rot or anything that would interfere. So it's almost like you can't just decide you're going to do it and go for it. You have to be sure that they're actually healthy enough clusters to do that type of fermentation. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can still sort the fruit, right? So when the the grapes come in, the clusters come in, we're always sorting everything on a table and pulling out whatever is, you know, maybe marginally not good. Some vintages are worse than others. But I don't make the decision of whole cluster fermentation before I see any fruit in the cellar. So as it comes in, I mean, I've seen it in the vineyard. I have some idea, but as it comes in, you're really looking at it to say, oh, and there's a certain point where you're like, this this has to be whole cluster. It's dark stems. It tends to be the older vines because they ripen later and, and are out in the fields longer. So they have the opportunity to really get brown and lignified. You don't want to add super bright green stems to your wine because then you do get this kind of very you know, green aspect of unripe uh, character, almost bitterness that can come from that. So the quality of the stems, yes, super important. What type of wine are you trying to make? Um, you know, I would never use whole cluster for a, you know, if the expression I was going for was something very forward fruit, uh, simple, um, you know, not, a, not, not big tannin, something soft and approachable, maybe not whole cluster for that. But if I'm trying to produce a wine that has some real nice breadth to, to it and some 
texture to it and it has the ability to age. Those are the wines that you want to use that whole cluster. It feels like a very polarizing topic, right? Because I think if you were to get a group of winemakers together, especially like if you were to go to Burgundy, right, you would hear very different opinions on the subject, not only whether to do it, but then also what it actually does to the wine. And am I understanding that correctly? You know, when I talk to different winemakers, like what are some of the resulting things that you get from whole cluster? It's like, well, it goes back to it depends, right? It depends yes, on right. the side of the fruit because we're also talking about potassium inclusion, right? Which is the stem mm-hmm. is going to add. So you, from a science standpoint, you have to be aware of what that's actually going to do to the chemistry of your overall wine. I think it's perhaps worth pointing out, especially for those who are getting geekier about Pinot. You know, if you happen to like go to La Palais, these are things that people are going to talk about because you've got like Henri Jaillet, like a legendary winemaker who's an yeah. avid proponent of destemming with followers like Mayo Camusay, Fourier, uh, Rouget. Mm-hmm. Those guys are all like avid proponents of no stem inclusion at all. But then you go across the way to somewhere like DRC or Dujac, as you mentioned, Ponceau, those mm-hmm. guys, you know, amazing producers, they are yeah. using whole cluster. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, it sounds like you're kind of pro that, but is that kind of a, a general consensus as a winemaker that it is a little bit divided in that way? In Burgundy, yeah. I remember those conversations. It, it's, it's a, <laughs> it, it is a dividing um, line and people seem to like kind of take their stance <laughs> and that's, but it, it has an imprint on the wines and there's no question. If you're going to do whole cluster, your wines, yes, are going to be defined by the site, but the winemaking technique really adds something to to that and it's going to create a certain style and character to your wines. We've got the uh, the Landform Pinot in front of us, which is 25% whole cluster. Louisa, you have it as well. I wonder if maybe we could just kind of talk about some of the things that we're noticing in the glass, especially for those at home that are curious about what to look for. I mean, we're not usually blind tasting, but I think if we're at a tasting room or we're, we're reading tasting notes and someone says, oh, it's 50% whole cluster, what that means. So if we could just kind of look at the glass and, and taste it and maybe Louise, you can kind of walk us through like what elements of this wine do you think are whole cluster? What elements are site? I know it's really difficult to do because you didn't make the wine, but. <laughs> I know I just tasting it for the first time today. So no, it's really cool to see this wine. I, I find this a really beautiful kind of pure expression of Oregon Pinot Noir. I love that it's, it's sourced from different sites in the Valley. So you're going to get this kind of nice overview it's definitely showing the 2021 vintage, which had this gorgeous kind of clarity of fruit and bright acidity, but there's this nice fresh fruit quality to the 21s I just love. And, and the tannins tannins are super like supple and nice on your mouth. This wine is, is a really um, attractive, kind of approachable, easy to drink wine. I'm surprised that there's 25% whole cluster on this, to be honest with you. I get some mm. of the savory notes and I get some, some kind of interesting um yeah kind of juniper and sage and that's those kinds of notes in the in the nose along with a lot of fruit though so there's i mean there's a good amount of like fresh beautiful red fruit yeah in the mouth you know it has it does have this nice kind of brambly effect and i think that's part of the whole cluster inclusion it's got this kind of nice rusticity almost to the tannins that i think that is comes from the whole cluster but still retains this this kind of focused, beautiful fruit. You tell me that it's 25%. I don't know that I would have caught that yeah. without it being told that because it has so much beautiful kind of stuff full of red fruit. 
Yeah. To me, it's a, it's a really nice supporting character in this wine, right? It's just like, mm-hmm. it's there to add a little bit more of that texture, a little bit more of that body. You know, Pinot Noir, I think at its core, it's a, it's a thin skinned grape that produces a light bodied wine. There's not a lot that you can do or should do potentially to it to make it a, something that's different, though sh- surely there are producers that will. Yes. But I think we had talked a little bit about the, you know, putting makeup on a wine, right? There's not mm-hmm. a lot you can do. And so Pinot Noir is traditionally not a wine that you're going to see 24, 36, 48 months of New French Oak. It's not a grape that wants to tolerate that. So would you potentially see whole cluster as a way to not mimic those things, but to, to support it in some ways if the texture was maybe missing, if there was like an element that felt like it needed to be there but wasn't? I don't know. I mean, part of me says no, because yeah. if you have that type of a wine, that it's going to stand out. It's If you put that whole, it's like putting a bunch of new oak on a, mm. on a wine, right? It still has that same effect. Yeah, exactly. That it's like you're going to throw something on there that is... Um, maybe too much for that wine to to be able to incorporate in a, in a nice kind of elegant way. So I'm always looking for more like the blocks of fruit and the and the wines that can hold this, can hold it in a in a nice kind of mm. integrated way that it adds a dimension, like you said, but it's supporting what's already there. It's not something that can f- not fix, but you know I think when we're talking about oak and cabernet, which I'll keep going back to that example, oak and cabernet. Oak can hide a lot. It can mask a lot of things. Whole cluster is not that. It is not something that can or should be there to mask any falls. It is just there to enhance, not to protect. Right. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about originally, right? How transparent Pinot Noir is. Right. And you really, everything you do as a winemaker is in respect to what that is giving you and not trying to impose on it. You know, the other thing I was going to add about whole cluster, which is interesting, is for me, it it took me a long time to figure out how to incorporate whole cluster with our new oak, because Mm. new oak can also be such a big imprint. And what kind of barrels do we use with wines that have whole cluster? Because you don't want to emphasize any of the green notes that can come from whole cluster, possibly. And you do want to kind of have the barrel showcase the, the, the spice that can come and the savoriness. So that has taken me years and years to try to find that match between what is the right cooper or toast or whatever it is that works with whole cluster because it's it is different than a wine that has been destemmed. Vanessa, I know you uh, got a little sneak peek at the the Ponzi Laurelwood Pinot before the rest of us, which I think by the time this episode comes out is going to be available on Wine Access. Do you have a second to just like? talk about that wine, maybe related to what we're drinking, unrelated. But I think it is it is the Laurelwood, which I have to say, and it's not because she's sitting here, the Laurelwood is so special, both the Chardonnay and the Pinot. It's, an, it's a new ABA. Thank you. But it does have like a very signature sort of herbaceous, uh, in, in the most beautiful, like sweet herb way, not herbaceous like eucalyptus. Like mm-hmm. I, I likened it to like herbed buttered popcorn when I was drinking the Chardonnay. It just like it's like if you sprinkle like Herbe de Provence in it, like that's what it tasted like. But I know you've got that in your glass as well as um, the Landform Vanessa. So I just thought it was worth mentioning. Yes. No, I'm so glad you did. Yeah, it's the 2021 vintage. As you mentioned, it's a new AVA. I'd actually like to ask Louisa about like, because when we talk about AVAs or American viticultural areas, they're, you know, designated regions that are supposed to show something that's different, that's unique, that can tell you kind of where it's from. So like, what is it about Laurel Wood? Like what makes it different from surrounding AVAs? Yeah, it's one of the newer AVAs in the Willamette Valley. It was 2020, we got it established. And um, what's cool about Laurel Wood is it's the only AVA in the Willamette Valley that 
is defined by soil. Mm. Every other AVA is defined by a geographic, you know, line or a river or whatever it is. This one is defined solely by the soil. So what mm. we tried to do to do with this AVA is incorporate just the part of the hillside, the mountain, Shehalem Mountains, um, which is right outside my window here. That is this specific type of soil, which is a beautiful kind of a basalt-based soil with freshwater sedimentary, windblown sedimentary soil on top. So actually very similar to soils in like Austria or places like that, where they have this windblown low soil. So all the wines are, are showing this expression of Laurel Wood soil, which to me is kind of darker fruit, but it's, it's not like black fruit. It's like kind of blueberry fruit. It's that this beautiful spectrum of kind of blue, black fruit and lots of spice. So these wines often have a lot of, even in the Chardonnays, they have like this white pepper spice, these um, kind of apple pie spices, cardamom and nutmeg that are very prominent. Along with the, with the Pinot, you get these dried rose petal and lavender and violet, those really compelling aromatics. But in the mouth is like the telltale sign of laurel wood is these kind of black licorice notes. And then these very kind of rustic, dusty tannins that you get from laurel wood soil. And that's kind of how I can pick it out in a blind lineup is the, is the quality of the tannins. Before we wrap up, we've got a few questions from the audience. Uh, one we kind of we kind of touched on earlier, which is what kinds of wines other than Pinot would use whole cluster? Louisa, uh, mm. I mean, Pinot is obviously probably the biggest example. What else have you seen out there? Nebbiolo mm. is one, you know, because you mentioned I spent some time in, in Piedmont yeah. and definitely, definitely whole cluster is used in the production of Nebbiolo. Also, you know, very long barrel age on that wine. So it has the time to really expand and refine and become very textured and beautiful. You know, I haven't made a, I make Pinot Noir. That's what I do. <laughs> She's like, I was told <laughs> this is a Pinot podcast. <laughs> I don't know a lot of, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I've used it on like Dolcetto. I make some Dolcetto mm-hmm. that I've done like a hundred percent whole cluster, kind of a carbonic effect on, but as routine practice, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I know. Get I've seen Gamay, Syrah, Syrah um, mm-hmm. uh, little Zinfandel. Oh, from Gamay, time to time. yeah, Gamay does. Yeah, for sure. it's yeah. Ba- yeah, Gamay's baby mm-hmm. Pinot, right? You know, one thing we didn't touch on was what this actually does to the price of the wine. So, what does whole cluster do to the price of the wine? Are destemmed wines more expensive? I'm using the whole cluster in my higher end wines. That's how I, I kind of feel like they're more appropriate for those wines yeah. because of those those are the wines that I want to be kind of more compelling and have kind of this more like, I don't know, more places to go with, with your experience with the wine. But also I want these wines to age. And so yeah. to me, that's that's a, a real, the, the whole cluster adds this kind of nice ability to age and get even more interesting. So not because of the function of making them, it's just I think that that's the technique is used for more uh, expensive wines in my mind. Yeah. The last one is in regards to food pairing, which is food uh, pairing whole cluster versus destemmed wines is should I be doing something different? Louise, I think you brought a good point up with the ageability of these wines. And to me, like, I love Pinot Young. I love Pinot Old. But if I'm going to pair an older Pinot, I'm definitely going to be looking at things differently with a whole cluster Pinot that's got 10 to 15 years of age versus a new. Because I think the ones that have age that are whole cluster definitely show more of their, like, savory side, a little bit more of, like, an edginess. And so I would tend especially since you're adding in a little bit extra tannin, I think I would tend to lean on dishes that have a little bit more structure 
So heavier animal proteins or, you know, we talked about our plant-based episode, things that are a little bit more charred, things that are doused in olive oil, things that just have like a heavierness to them, I think work better with whole cluster. But maybe, Louisa, you have an, a different opinion. My favorite, I think, dish with with some of these wines that have this whole cluster component is like, uh, you know, lamb, lamb with like herbs de Provence, mm. something that has this kind of savory notes that continue on in the in the meal. So, yeah, I think you're right, though. I mean, th- I think they're they can stand up to a lot more. You just said lamb and I got so, I got I know. so hungry and I'm actually heading to dinner like right now. I'm going, I'm in Philly <laughs> and I'm, it's my last night here and I'm going to Laser Wolf, which is known for doing oh, like exquisite yeah. lamb. There you go. I'm going to wrap up our show there just Lucky selfishly you. so I can go eat some <laughs> lamb. <laughs> Uh, Louisa, I can't thank you enough for being here with us. This has been so much fun. Thank you for sharing all of this knowledge with us and not debunking, but helping to demystify a topic that I still think (laughs) is very complicated, but really helped to illuminate all the different paths to Pinot and specifically the whole cluster versus the stemming pathway. If y'all are not part of the wine club, you should definitely consider joining. The link to do so is in our description below. We would love to have you there. Of course, we've got tons of content about those wines and about the show going up on Instagram, on YouTube, if you're not watching it there. Uh, And as always, if you have any questions or want to add to the conversation, please do shoot us a DM on Instagram or even on YouTube with a comment. We are always there to answer your questions. And we love some of these suggestions that we'd be getting for episodes. This has been the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast hosted by myself, Amanda Cross, and Vanessa Comlin, and brilliantly supported by our associate producer, Lara Coffer. Until next time, y'all, we'll see you later. Bye.